We are talking about the word prepare. And I wanted to challenge you with the question, are you ready for Christmas? Now, some of you are what I'd call Christmas ninjas, right? You've already got it done, right? Any Christmas ninjas in the room? Your shopping was done before Black Friday, all right? Uh, maybe Cyber Monday. Nobody's raising their hand. Okay, so another place you might be is, um, you know, when I even ask the question, it's like you can start to go, wait a minute, I got to get ready for Christmas. You know, I got so much to do. So some of us are there, and then some of us are saying, Christmas? I got three whole weeks. I don't have to worry about Christmas yet. Are you ready for Christmas? And you see, the idea of Christmas creates this sort of sense of anticipation of the arrival of something, something coming, something big, something important, something significant in our lives. And we do have a sense that we need to get ready. And that's what the, the idea of Advent is about. It's about the arrival of something important. And today we want to talk about what do you do to prepare for this arrival? The idea that there's something that we need to get ready for, to make ready in our lives. And is it the house? Is it the house that we need to get ready? The presents? the meals, or is it something else? Now, I know that if you have somebody important coming to your house, you know, you, there's usually, at least I know at our house there is, there's a little bit of a scramble, like last minute to get ready, right? Because there are those areas of your house that you'll put up with a little normal messiness, right? Am I speaking to anybody here? Like a bathroom <laughs> or a kitchen, you know? And, and the company's coming, you go, okay, we got to, you know, grab the paper towels, we got to go hit those areas. And so we, we have these areas of our houses that are they're okay for us normally, but when something important is happening, we have to go clean up. We have to get ready. And so Christmas kind of becomes this time of where even, even if you don't have company, you're getting your house ready for the celebration of Jesus. And we do things like this. We, we, we put lights up, right? <laughs> Remember the movie, Christmas Vacation? Yeah. And, and so we spend $6 billion, did you know that, every year on just Christmas ornaments, decorations, lights, things like that? And I know why. I know why. Because there's an unwritten law of the universe that says only 25% or at least 25% of your lights will work the next year, okay, every year. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah, it happens that way, right? You, no matter how you put them away, it doesn't make a difference. I've thrown them in a box. I've put them in way neatly. I get them out the next year. 25% of them won't work. So, of course, it costs a lot of money. But we do this, and then we, we get on ladders and lean way over, you know, real high to put stuff up, you know. Anybody do that? Take a risk. Get those lights up. Just want to make it look pretty. And, uh, you know, so we want to make it look really good. Oh, maybe that's a little overboard. I don't know, just a little bit. But the point is, and maybe some of you guys have done this. I, I'm, I'm sure you maybe have. You, you get it all, your house all decorated, and you go out to the street, right? And you look at your house, and then you're like, yes. <laughs> it's so awesome, isn't it, to see all those lights on your house at Christmas time? Why do we do that? It's kind of crazy in a way. And you know, I remember as, a, uh, as when my kids were very small, we'd go out after Christmas Eve services, and we drive around with a special map, you know, to see the, all the fancy decorations on it, the over-the-top over decorations, and I think I know why. Actually, I think I know exactly why we do this. It's so Santa Claus can find our house, right? <laughs> wink, wink. No. No, it's not. 
Why is light such a big part of Christmas? It's because, well, frankly, that's the way it's always been celebrated. Jesus is seen as the light coming into the world. In fact, look at this passage uh, from John, John 1, 9, the true light. Now, I want you to think about that. Why would the writer say a true light? It's because there are false lights. There, there's, there's light coming into the world that is not true, and especially around Christmas, but Jesus is the true light, and it comes to everyone, and that's what really is this arrival is all about. This is what we're waiting for, this true light of Jesus. A true light is interesting because it exposes things. It exposes darkness. It exposes our hearts, what's going on. It helps us to understand who God is and who we are. In fact, you can, you can fill in this blank. Uh, this is really, on your sermon notes card, this is really important. True light encourages my heart to agree with God about who he is, to agree with God about who he is and who I am. Because light true light shines into our lives and it illustrates, it illuminates us as people. And what it, what it exposes is not good. It's not good. It's, it, we need a savior. And so the true light that comes in the world is, you know, like we, we, see, we see it as joy, but one of the first things that light does is it exposes our need for a savior, for a king, for a messiah. And, and as at Christmas time, we just have to wrestle with the idea of, are, are we preparing for a baby or are we preparing for a king? A king that hung on a cross and died for us and took our sins. See, the true light shows us the need for that king. And so that's what we need to talk about when it comes to preparation. And last week, Mark talked about looking both ways. You know, that we would look back to that first Christmas and the babe in the manger and the quiet, silent night. How awesome it is that that night happened. But you have to turn the other way and understand why that baby came. And you have to look forward because here's the thing. He is coming back, right? He's coming back. Someday he's returning. And when he does, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Are you ready? The shocking thing for, for us is that, quite frankly, more than likely, he's going to come for you and for me before he returns for the whole world. We don't know, of course. Nobody knows the day or time that he'll come the second time. But I know every day I live, I'm closer and closer to that moment where he's coming for me. Am I ready for the king to come? We're going to look at uh, Mark just eight verses in the first chapter of Mark. And uh, it's a very interesting beginning to a gospel. We call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gospels, right? That's the name. And it's, it's a name given to the stories that are written, the, the, the books that are written, that describe Jesus' life. But the word gospel is euangelion in Greek, it, it's used in, throughout the scripture. It's not necessarily the name of a book or a type of book. It means good news. It means good news. That the gospel is the coming of someone important. And so when we look at this word gospel, we see it in the very first verse of the, of the first chapter of Mark. 
Mark begins this way as he writes. He says, from the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word, euangelion, is good news. So his arrival is not bad news, even though it exposes our sin. It's good news because he is coming to redeem us from our sins. Now, that word is not unique to the Bible. It's used in ancient history many, many times. And if you look at uh, Jesus' name, you see, okay, well, Jesus is Jesus. The word Jesus or Joshua means God saves. So there's good news about a God who saves. Christ means anointed one or king. So a king is coming, the son of God. There's an announcement that a king who is saving us, God who will save us is coming. Now, how do you get all that from the word good news? Well, it's the way it's used in that culture. Here's, here's an inscription from about Caesar Augustus. You recognize that name? Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor. They would regularly announce their coming whenever they would do something or move from one place to another. Here's the inscription is what it says. This is the, it was the birthday of the god Augustus. That's what they thought they were, those Roman emperors. The god Augustus is the beginning for the world of the euangelion, the good news of the gospel that has come to man through him. And so they would have advanced you know, parades and flags and ceremonies and stuff to say, here comes the king. And Mark's readers, when they read that about Jesus Christ, would have said, Jesus is the king. They would have known he was coming. Now, how do you get ready for a king? And that's what Mark wants us to see, is how do we get ready for the king? And he doesn't look back at all about Jesus coming as a baby. He only looks forward in his gospel. He covers none of the birth narrative, nothing about Bethlehem or angels or anything of that. He starts in a totally different place, and he looks forward. How do you get ready for a king? You think about it, when Jesus came that first night of Christmas, I mean, there was no preparation for him, right? Somebody even forgot to make a reservation at the end, right? I mean, there was, I mean you didn't need any preparation there. He was coming. But on the other hand, when we look forward to what Jesus does as he becomes the king, there's something we need to do to prepare. And so here's what, uh, the way Mark describes this. He quotes an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. And the prophecy says this, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. It's like the prophet is speaking to Jesus before he comes. I'm gonna send this messenger before you before your face, and he's going to prepare your way. What does that mean? Why would Jesus have to have somebody, a person, a messenger, a human being, prepare the way for him? What could he do to prepare the way for God? Kind of crazy when you think about it, actually. And this is a, this is a prophecy that was given like 800 years before Jesus came. So many people who don't believe in the Bible, many people who think Jesus is not real, and they haven't looked at the evidence. There are over 300 of these prophecies in Scripture that say Jesus is coming, and this is one of them. The mathematical odds of all those being fulfilled in one person is almost, it's like practically impossible. And yet it happened. Isn't that amazing? 
And so we see Mark, and he's writing, he's pulling from this Old Testament passage, and it says this, it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord making his paths straight. There it is again. Why would anyone need to make God's path, Jesus's path as he comes, the Son of God, straight? How in the world, I mean, it, we're not talking about a physical road here, it can't be. What is this really about, this idea that we have to prepare, somebody has to prepare the way for the Lord? Now, who is that? Does anyone know? John the Baptist, the crazy guy in the desert that pulled wings off of locusts and legs off of locusts and then decided to dip them into honey and have a little snack. Good protein, right? Good protein. And this crazy guy was out in the desert, which is not where Jesus was. I mean, he was in, he was in Galilee and Jerusalem and in different places. And so what does it mean that he was preparing the way? He wasn't making a highway for Jesus. He wasn't, he wasn't an advanced man in a parade or a communication teams that go into to the town and, and set everything up. He wasn't preparing a physical road. He was preparing a way into people's hearts. And that's the key for you and for me as we think about preparation for Christmas. <clears throat> Have we prepared our hearts as well as our homes for the arrival, the coming of Jesus Christ? This is what John did. He appeared, in the bapti appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we get a little confused about what repentance is all about as we think it's clean up your act and then you can go to God. You can be in a relationship with God. It's always, religion is always about that. Christianity is not. But re all religions are about cleaning up your act, and then you'll be accepted by God. But repentance here is a change of thinking, of heart, of mind, about who God is and who we are. And when we begin to understand the realities of who God is, a holy God, and we're not holy, but he's a gracious God, a forgiving God, and we can become forgiven. We are ready for Christmas. That's the reality of what God wants to do in our hearts now in our lives. So let's look at this idea of repentance. It's a change of heart. And this is similar to the statement I had you fill in the blank a minute ago. It's simply to repent is to agree with God about who he is and about who I am. About who God is and about who I am. See, God is a lot of things, and he certainly is a just God, and he will punish sin. But he's also a merciful, loving, forgiving God through Christ. And I certainly am a sinner in need of God's grace, but I also am a forgiven, loved child of God. So we have to change our hearts. We have to understand who we are first, that we are sinners, and that God can provide that forgiveness to change our thinking there. And there's some diseases of the heart that get in the way, that get in the way of us changing our hearts. And we're going to see that from the book of Isaiah. The one, the very passage that Mark quotes there expands on the idea and shows us this problem of the heart. The reason why the path isn't straight for Jesus to come to our heart is shown to us in this scripture. We're going to look at Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 3. It begins very familiar way. We've already heard this idea. There's a voice of one in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We're not talking about a road project here. 
We're not talking about, you know, road graders and heavy equipment moving dirt. We're talking about the dirt of our sin, the stuff in our hearts that's in the way. And, and he says, look, there are three conditions of our heart that are problematic that keep that road from being straight. The first one is this. There are people that, um, well, every valley has to be raised up. There are people so low and so broken and so feeling they're so sinful, they have to be raised up. There are, there's a, a mountain people who think they're really good and they need to be brought low. And then there are people who are just rough and their faith, they've got some edges and they need to be made smooth. So it's an analogy. It helps us to see the spiritual condition of our hearts. So let's talk about that a little bit. Remembering that these three phrases are heart conditions and that we need to ask ourselves, each of us need to ask ourselves, where's our heart? Are we ready for Christmas? So the heart conditions that we look at, the first one being the idea that some people are low and they need to be raised up. Every valley shall be raised up. You know, when uh, John the Baptist was out preaching in the desert, people were coming out to, to repent of their sins, to sort of prepare their hearts for Jesus. And there's a group of people that came to, to him. They were called tax collectors. Look at what they said. They said, teacher, what should we do? It's almost as if they didn't know whether or not they could ever be in a relationship with God. They were low, and they needed to be brought up. They needed to be reminded of God's love and grace. They were hated people by that culture because they collected money, over-collected taxes, kept money for themselves. They were working for the Roman government. They didn't know whether grace applied to them or not. There are people, people in our culture that are feeling that they're so broken and so far away from God that his grace doesn't apply. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, you, you, you just can't imagine the reality of God's grace, the magnitude of that solution that he has for us. All sin has been paid for through Christ. Everyone is invited. Jesus hung out with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners for that reason, to remind us that we're all all of us can be saved. You know, uh, here's a quote from Winston Churchill, kind of demonstrates what I'm talking about. It says, I'm ready to meet my maker, whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. <laughs> Not true. God is ready to meet you. He's more than able to take care of your craziness in your life, your sin, your shame, whatever it is that has brought you low. He has more than enough capacity forgiveness. He's taken care of all sin. He's made sin nothing through Christ. Nothing separates you from the love of God. You know, then maybe you remember this uh, show, right? We're not worthy, you know. Some of you are old enough to remember Wayne's World. But so many people in the world today say they're not worthy of God's love and grace. That's a crooked path. See, we got to straighten that thinking out so that the heart can be reached. And if you look at that statement that we were talking about, to repent here is to agree with God about who he is and about who I am. The person in this, with this heart condition, they're really discounting who God is. They're saying, you know, he can't handle it. He can't handle my sin. He's, he's never seen anything like this before. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. So let's look at the next heart condition. The idea that every mountain and hill needs to be made low. See, there are also people in our world today that think that they're good people. 
time, it's like a disease in our country. It's like, oh, yeah, no, he's a good person. Here to funerals where it'd be, oh, he's a good, good person. He's in a better place. Really? Do you know what the Bible says about that? It says every one of us is a sinner. Those high places need to be brought low. This is what John had to do to the Pharisees when they came out and encountered him. And he called them. He said, you brood of vipers. Who, who warned you to escape the coming wrath? And Jesus would call those same Pharisees and Sadducees. He'd say, you know, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're, you're like dried dead bones on the inside. You look good on the outside, but you're just not good. The reality is all of us fall into that category. And yet today, everybody believes they're good people. Sure, they're better than this person, but not according to Scripture. We all have the same fundamental problem of sin, so all these high places have to be brought low. Because without that humility, we will never be able to receive the king in our hearts. We are not angels. Everybody wants to think they are, but we are not angels. We are not perfect people. We have to own the reality of our sin. And when you look at that statement, to repent is to agree with God about who he is and about who I am, we've got to, for this heart condition, we'd have to cross out these words. Because people aren't being honest about who they really are. They're trying to paint their lives with some moralism that would earn them the right to go to heaven someday. It's absolutely false and works against the cause of Christ. The last spiritual heart condition is the roughness that the prophet talks about, that rough places would be made smooth. When you look at that statement, to repent is to agree with God about who he is and who I am, well, you wouldn't really cross out anything. It's really more like making the whole thing kind of pink. It's kind of halfway. It's doubt. It's like, you know, I don't know whether it's really true or not. I mean, could, I mean, could there really be a God? Was there a virgin birth? Did he rise from the dead? And we have these doubts about who Jesus says he is, that he's, you know, he's real. Especially this time of year, you'll hear things on, you know, National Geographic or Discovery Channel, all these, you know, they're trying to, trying to discredit Christ. And the reality is there's plenty of evidence, folks, for the person and work of Jesus Christ. But yet, we have doubts, and I get it. I totally get it. Even John had doubts. He was placed into prison. Uh, he, he heard about the deeds of the Messiah then, and he sent his, his disciples to ask, are you the one? He's, he's questioning, are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? When pressures come in our lives and when, when things get difficult and challenging, first temptation will be to question God. And even John fell into that trap. And yet, at Christmas, the king wants to come and he wants to knock the rough edges off our faith. He wants, to, he wants to smooth out our understanding of who he is. He wants to reassure us and give us that clear understanding and confidence of the reality of what he's done for us. You see, when that happens, when that happens, when, when the valleys are raised up, in other words, the, the people who are broken are reassured forgiveness is possible. When the people who are believing they're too good are brought low and, and, and reminded that they have a sin problem, and when our faith becomes stronger and more certain and secure, the rough places are knocked over, what happens? The glory of the Lord will be revealed for all the people. We'll see it together. Because we'll see the power of what God does no matter what heart problem you have. 
He heals it. He fixes it. He gives us strength and faith. This is what happened. This is what happened out in the desert for so many people. Notice this passage. It says all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. They're being baptized. They were confessing their sins. Because the reality is we want this answer. We want this king in our lives. We want to know for sure what happens after we die. We want to be reminded that we can live forever. We want to know this and live in it. Just that we have so many things that get in the way. So many crooked things that take us off course. So many things that keep Christ from our hearts. See, the reality is Jesus could go anywhere he wanted to go. He didn't need us to straighten his path. But the one place that he will not go without your permission is your heart. Are you ready for Christmas? The coming of the king. The first step is to humbly, humbly understand who he is. John tells us this in 1 John 1, verse 7. He says, look, I'm not, I'm not worthy to, to tie, stoop down and untie this man's sandals. Have you humbly examined your life and your need for a Savior, knowing who you are and know, knowing who God is? The good news is that as people, as Christians, while this seems hard, even this has been provided for. Jesus has prepared a way that, that he'll operate on our hearts. He'll give us faith and work faith and develop faith. John concludes with this promise, and he says this. He says, look, I baptized you with water, but he, Jesus, is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that's knocking at the door of your heart and saying, let me come in and do some work today. Let me, let me just come in and show you how powerfully I can reshape your thinking and your mind and your life. And I'll bring you down if you need to be brought down, and I'll lift you up if you need to be lifted up, and I'll reassure you and teach you and guide you and counsel you if your rough edges need to be knocked off. Because God has prepared a way to your heart, the power to change it. So Advent. Arrival, Advent, the time of preparation to make something ready. Advent, a, a time of repentance, a change of heart. What's your strategy? Are you ready for Christmas? How will you prepare this week? Let me give you just one idea, just one. Last week, Mark gave you four. What are you going to do? Take it home. This is, a, this is a devotional on repentance. Would you take it home? say, God, please, in my heart, through the power of the Spirit, do that work in me. Heal my heart. Make straight the Spirit's path to me this Christmas. Are you ready for Christmas? Let's pray together.